It's for you. That's okay. Okay. Um, so, what we're going to do, just giving you, giving you a heads up, we're only on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and there's a lot of chapters left. So today we're going to finish up uh, chapter 6. I'll be back with you on September 4th. We'll do chapter 7, and then on September 18th, I'm going to do five chapters all in the same day, just to make sure we finish our series on 2 Corinthians. So I only have a few more weeks left with you guys, and so um, cherishing each opportunity. And today, you can bring the slide up for the, uh, for the sermon. Um, today, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden for at least a few more weeks. And uh, today, the, uh, we're continuing our series on 2 Corinthians in the summer. And today's sermon is entitled, Contaminated Temples. Contaminated Temples. We're going to read the passage. It's chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Let me just read it for you. Let's get right into it. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are all the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, go out from the center, go out from the middle, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will come to you, or then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so this is really an interesting passage. Remember, this is on the heels of what he just said in the recent chapter, or the re recent part of this chapter. We talked about it last week about vulnerability. And he says, Corinthians, our hearts are wide open to you, and the reason our hearts are open to you is because we love you. But you are not hindered by us, you are hindered by your own affections. And in context, it makes kind of sense now when you think about it, he talks about being hindered by your own affections, and then he talks about temple worship right after that. In reality, though, he's not talking about Jewish temple worship at this point. So let's look at the historical part. As you guys know, in the garden, what we like to do is we like to break down each passage into three applications. The historical application. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? Then we can talk about the theology. What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? And then we can figure out what our devotional application is. What about me? What am I supposed to do? Why and how do I do it? And the mistake a lot of people make is they read a passage and they skip right to the devotional application. That's the fun part. But you have to do the homework and study first before you can really know what the Scripture is telling you. So let's do our homework. Let's do the historical. I want to talk about ecumenical temple worship. There was this desire in the Corinthian church, even going back to 1 Corinthians, that they had this desire to integrate their worship with pagan temple sanctuary worship with other groups in Corinth. And they were in love with this practice. In fact, Paul referenced it in verse 12. He says you're restricted by your own affections. And he talks about it in 1 Corinthians, uh, more than one place, but this one here. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
And so what was going on in Corinth at the time is, I think part of their motives were right, maybe sort of right, and some of them were wrong. There was that selfish aspect where they wanted to fulfill their own love of temple worship. Remember, the Greeks loved temples. And so it was a natural part of their society. And in reality, they're in a place, in a city, where there are a lot of pagan temples. And so you could see how a Christian church in Corinth would be tempted to go into what they had been growing up with their whole lives, which was this temple sanctuary worship system. But let me share with you what was happening as they tried to integrate themselves into a pagan worship community. There were some practices that were going on that Paul actually references in 1 Corinthians. There was some sexually explicit worship expressions. These were worship expressions that were immoral, sexually. I know that may sound like, how can that be worship? But this was a common practice in some of these temples, some of these sanctuaries. There was worship under the influence of mind-altering drugs. People were trying to get to a different reality in their mind, in their heart. And they would take these hallucinogens, thinking that would enhance their experience of their temple sanctuary worship. Now, don't be offended by this, women. But Paul references this. And it's also, I've been able to kind of verify it through my historical study. Loud, obnoxious clanging of cymbals by women. In these temples, women, one of the things they would do, it wasn't music, They would just take these loud cymbals and clang them together, making all kind of noise. As a matter of fact, you could probably see in some ways why Paul would say women should keep silent in the church. Because these women were clanging these cymbals. Think about it. Husbands, I know you love your wives, but if they're home clanging the cymbals, what are you going to say? Women keep silent in the home. So there is a... There is a social historical application to why Paul was saying, women, you got to be quiet. In the, I know for me, I have ADD and OCD, and, and if somebody's clanging a cymbal right in my ear when I'm trying to worship, it's not going to go well. <clears throat> I won't be worshipful. It'll look more like how I drive on 41. <laughs> we don't get into all of that. But this gives you some insight into why Paul was teaching this stuff about women silent in this particular church. There were also some random verbal utterings. In other words, there were tongues. And Paul even says in Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, it doesn't profit anything. And so in reality, the idea of worshiping in tongues or speaking a language you weren't familiar with was a common practice by pagans in their temples and sanctuaries. And then there was some worship characterized by savagery, sometimes self-mutilation, and things like that. It was, a, it was not a good worship setting, as you can see. And I got, I found a, I, I got this quote from a source that I was looking at. Uh, I think it was Biblical Archaeology, Biblical Archaeology Review. It's a great resource if you want to look at the historical applications of Scripture. <clears throat> and here's what it says. It was only in a frenzy that one could hold communion with the gods or an ecstasy so great that the soul seemed to leave the body to become one with him. That was the idea. That was the pursuit of these temple sanctuary worship experiences was that we wanted to have such a frenzy, we wanted to be so worked up, wanted to be so excited, so loud, so obnoxious 
that your, that your heart and your mind begin to just have this rapture feeling where you're leaving the body and you're becoming one with God. And that's kind of, you can see how that's kind of bled over today into a lot of Christian movements today. This, this laser-like focus on experience. And this laser-like focus on experience is enhanced by a building that is built perfectly suited to creating the experience you have such great affection for. This was all temple-centered activity. This wasn't done in their small group ministry. This was in their temples, in their sanctuaries, temples of false gods, but temples nonetheless. And as I said before, the Greeks were in love with temples and beautiful buildings. So that's the historical application of this passage and why Paul addresses this idea. So let's look at the theology. God prefers people over beautiful buildings and ceremonies. Paul references the temple of God in verse 16, and he declares that the temple of God is not a building, but it is what? We. He says, "What, what cause does this kind of stuff have with the temple of God? And he says, by the way, just in case you're confused, you think I'm talking about Jerusalem, I'm not. We are the temple of God. We are the sanctuary. And this is a kind of where Paul goes. And in fact, this is declared, this idea of the people being God's sanctuary, people being where God lives, is declared in many places in the scripture. So I picked just a few. Ezekiel 37, 27 to 28. This is before Paul. This is before Jesus was on earth. My dwelling place shall be with them, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You can see that even early on, even when there was temple worship, the idea that God's goal was would be this. I don't want to live in a building. I don't want my presence to be associated with a building. I don't want people to walk into a building and feel like they're closer to me. I want to be in and among the people where they are. Another one, <clears throat> excuse me, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not hate you or abhor you. Kind of like oil and water kind of separate themselves. That's our perspective that we seem about God because he's so righteous and holy and we are so depraved. <clears throat> but he says, my soul or my spirit shall not abhor you. In other words, it's kind of like, a, it's, it's Hebrew, so there's kind of a poetic as, essence there, and it means the opposite. Not only will my soul not abhor you, my soul will love you. It will cling to you. That's kind of where the Hebrew gives us that insight. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Again, here's another perspective that God is saying, my intention is not that you walk into a building and say, wow, this is beautiful, this is where God is. And this is also an undeniable theology all throughout Paul's epistles. And there are many places I could point to, but I will point to the ones that he wrote in 1 Corinthians to this church. How's that? 1 Corinthians. Remember, we're studying 2, so this is a different book. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Okay, just in case you thought I was lying, did he kind of just spell it out there for you pretty good? If anyone destroys God's temple, not a building, but people, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
Does that sound weird? <clears throat> Do you ever think of yourself as a holy temple? Excuse me. <clears throat> then there's another one in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. <clears throat> so glorify God in your body. And he references this because of the sexually explicit worship expressions that they were participating in with pagans. You are the temple. You're going into these temples and having this sexually immoral worship. That is not a temple. You are the temple. Why are you defiling your temple. So that is the theological idea behind it, that God's intention has always been that he would at some point, thank you very much. <clears throat> it's like a desert in here, you know? So. <clears throat> so anyway, that's where we are right now. That's where the theological part of this passage is. Now let's look at the devotional part. This is the fun part. <clears throat> I want to talk about contaminated worship. Here's what I found to be true, particularly in evangelical circles. Worship is often contaminated by three things. See, he was just talking about how you're contaminating the temple. We are the temple. Here's how our worship is often contaminated by three things. The love of a building. Look, I'm not saying that buildings aren't necessary. Of course I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't keep care of our buildings and make sure they're nice and they're good places. I'm not saying that. But what begins to happen is we fall in love with a place more than we fall in love with God. And the love of a building can contaminate worship. In my opinion, a great example of this is in California with the Crystal Cathedral. I believe that contaminated their worship. I've referenced that in other sermons in the past. Then there's the love of an experience where we pursue a certain type of feeling or an emotion or an ecstasy or an out-of-body encounter with God, or at least we think it's God, and we will do whatever we can to recreate that over and over and over. <clears throat> and undeniably, at some point, we are disappointed. There's another thing that contaminates worship. It's ecumenical compromise. That's where you say, you know what? We want to make sure we bring as many people in together as we can, so we will compromise the gospel in this way or that way. <clears throat> Remember, that's one of the things that Paul was doing with the Corinthian church. He was saying, listen, the gospel needs to be affirmed. Because they were looking for ways to, maybe we don't need it so much, maybe we can accept these Judaistic principles and, you know, but these three, three, three things often contaminate our worship. Love of a building, love or pursuit of experience, and ecumenical compromise. All three are an attempt to bring people together around a common place, a common theme, a mythical common center. All of these are designed to bring groups of people together to one point. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, Churches and denominations in America spend millions and millions and millions of dollars and compromise thousands 
and thousands and thousands of times to create the illusion of experience and the illusion of God's presence, just like the church at Corinth was. And what it actually does is when we spend all this money and all this time and all this energy trying to create these illusions of experience, it actually corrupts our ability to enjoy God's experience. Why? Because we look at a different place. And the reason? Because this is the opposite of how the church was designed to operate. Now I have a little science experiment that I'm going to share with you guys today. This is a clear balloon. And these are some uh, hex nuts. Is that what they call them? Like you use them? Okay. I'm not into tools. So this is the church, a church person that is focused on building worship, experiential worship, ecumenical compromise. Put this in. Don't pop. Okay, so they're inside this church. Can you hear it? It makes a lot of noise. It goes around and around, and all it can do is focus on the center, right? You see that? That is what I call, I'm going to see if I can do this with two hands. Ready? That is centripetal force. Directed or moving toward the center with an unhealthy focus on the internal. That's what love of building, experience, and ecumenicalism does. See that? Maybe you can't see it, but you can hear it. That's temple worship. That's sanctuary worship. That's ecumenical worship. That's experiential worship. All you can do is look in, look in, look in. And you're by nature forced to go continually, I want to be toward the middle. I want to be in. I want to be in. And that seems like a good thing, right? It's the opposite of how the church is supposed to act. So now I want to show you another example, another science experiment, okay? Take this. Hope these scissors are tight or sharp, I mean. Good. Okay. Take this. Now, this is a little bit bigger bolt just for, you know, being able to explain it to you. So this is a little different. So I put this on the end of this rope. Here's another church member. You see how this works, right? i got to be careful. I don't want to hit my... Okay, got it. Okay. Okay. That's pretty good, right? All right. This is centrifugal force. That's what the church is supposed to be. Directed or moving away from a center gathering place. Do you see that? Now Christ is holding you. He's the center. He's the one with the power. But when you have a church that is not in love with a building, not in love with experience, not in love with ecumenicalism, what happens? You're now in a position where you are looking out. Now, unless, of course, your theology is bad, then you'll come off. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. Just kidding. But you see how that works? The church is a centrifugal force directed moving away from a center gathering place. Jesus holding us in his love as we seek to go out. See, this is how God intended for his church to work. He designed it with many temples. 
God's people, to spread from the center, Jesus, with God's message, with this gospel, out. So the question is, if that is so obvious, why is it so easy for us to be drawn to, to fall in love with locations and buildings and experiences? Why are we so driven to temple slash sanctuary slash ecumenical worship services and worship spaces? Why is that? I believe it's centered on the fact that we have this human inability to comprehend that Jesus has made us his sanctuary, his temple. It's a natural thing to cling to what we can see, what we can touch, what we hear, what we experience, and let those things define, get this, it's easy to see those things define the presence of God for us in our lives. But they are nothing more than a crutch. They are all, in fact, all these things, what we see, what we hear, what we can experience inside a building, those are all, in fact, powerless to transform us. Did you know that? <clears throat> oh, you may think it's transforming you, but it's not. Only one thing transforms you when the Spirit of God is implanted within you. The power of God's presence who dwells in you, when he makes you a temple, when he sets you apart, when he transforms you, when he takes you and changes your life, when he makes you fall in love with Heavenly Dad and his word, that is the power that transforms you, not the experience you enjoy. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that the campus center or the sanctuary or the worship time that we experience and we feel blessed by it, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. It's not. But it is not a sign of God's presence. Do you understand that? It might be an, an ability to experience God's presence in a different way when you're with other temples, other sanctuaries. But God's presence is not a feeling. You hear me? God's presence is a fact. Yes, our awareness of that presence may change from time to time. See, we have to accept and trust that these buildings that we use for church don't enhance God's presence one bit. I mean, if they did, I, if buildings enhanced God's presence, I wouldn't want to have nothing to do with that God. Nothing. They don't enhance God's presence in our life. In fact, we should embrace the reality that these things often hinder our ability to relate to God's presence in our life because it is a false sense of godliness. It's centripetal. And godliness does not result in inwardness. Godliness results in multiplication, in outwardness, in centrifugal force. We have to trust the teachings of God, Jesus, and Paul when they tell us, first of all, that we are the temple sanctuary of God. We are. Not the campus center, 
not the building we have. You know, understand there's denotative meanings for words, which means what their actual accurate definition is. And then there's connotative meanings. Meanings have been attached to words over the course of years just by nature of people using them. And I understand there's a connotative meaning. This used to be a sanctuary. So they built that one. That became a sanctuary. That's just a connotative meaning. It doesn't house the presence of God. It doesn't. We are the sanctuary. We are the temple. We are the people. We must trust when God and Jesus and Paul tell us that we are the temple sanctuary of God. And the next thing we must do, we must make sure that we don't pollute our temples by loving other temples, whether they are Christian temples or non-Christian temples. We have to make sure that we don't pollute our experience with God. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. They were corrupting their temples. And Paul says, don't corrupt your temples. You are a temple. So as the band comes up, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share this one last concept, this one last thought with you. If you are in a worship setting, there's a choir and an organ or a band or whatever. Maybe there's a prayer time and you're in a building or whatever. And you have this sense of God's presence. Don't corrupt it by thinking, man, God is in this place. No, he's not. He's in your place. And think about it this way. If you begin to grasp the concept that God dwells in you, You are not limited by how you experience him depending upon where you are physically. It's where you are spiritually, where God has called you out of darkness into light, given you the gift of faith, transformed you, lifted us up to sit with him in heavenly places, and saved us by grace so that he would no longer, not only not abhor our souls, but love them and collaborate and commingle with us. No more polluted temples. We are housing the presence of God in our very hearts.